You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. About a month ago, we talked to Hilton Rathel. He's a head of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii. He cautioned about the spike in COVID cases and the risk to those on Maui with so many in close quarters and emergency shelters. Last month, the state hospital census count put Hawaii in the top tier of COVID hotspots across the country. We spoke with Dr. Sarah Kemble, state epidemiologist, yesterday afternoon about the snapshot of cases in Hawaii and when we might see the first doses of the latest booster shot available in our state. So we have continued to see increases in COVID cases over the past couple of months, really starting from around July. And at that time, we knew that nationally there was some upcreep in COVID cases but we began to see a pretty steep increase um, through July and August in Hawaii. So we were at 71 average daily new cases on July 5th, and that has fluctuated up and down a little, but we've increased 129 daily new cases as of September 4th. And over that same period, test positivity has also increased. So we went from about 8% statewide to more like a 12 to 15% range. And now hospitalizations, just as uh, Hilton was saying, have increased, and we've seen more than doubling from about 48 in July to a peak of 112 on August 25th, 2023. That's the number of patients currently hospitalized with COVID-19 represented as a seven-day average. And is there anything you can say about the severity of those cases? I don't know, you know how many are in the ICU. We have seen not a huge shift in the proportion of those that are in the ICU. So where you have 112 cases in the hospital, there may be five to seven in the ICU. But we do know that hospitalized patients can go on to have other sequelae. And we do often see an increase in deaths following those increases in hospitalizations with time. What is the message that you want to get out to the general public at this point in time? I think we have a lot of tools in our toolbox now. So there are several things that people can do. Probably one of the most important primary prevention things that people can do is to make sure they're up to date on their COVID vaccines. There is a new formulation of COVID vaccine that is going to be coming out probably within a week or two. The new vaccine has been targeted against newer variants of the Omicron variant of COVID-19. So the idea is that this vaccine is tailored to get better coverage of some of the variants we've seen circulating recently. And what's the guidance for who should get that? 65 and older and compromised? So we're still awaiting guidance from CDC and the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. They are scheduled to meet after the FDA meets to make a ruling on approving the new vaccine. So we anticipate hearing the outcomes of those meetings perhaps within the next couple of weeks. So once we have that guidance, we'll know more about who exactly is recommended to get the new vaccine. You know, my guess, if I were a betting woman, is that is going to be recommended to the general population like we, we saw last fall with the new formulations. But we'll have to see if there's other nuances. How soon do you think that Hawaii would see these new vaccines, you know, hit our shores? So it's possible that we may begin to see these new vaccines as soon as mid-September. Pre-orders are already being taken by the CDC. Now, remember, the new vaccines are going to be commercially available as well. So this isn't limited anymore to just distributing vaccines through state and governmental agencies. So the other health providers can order these through usual commercial ordering. And so we expect that we'll start seeing both private and public vaccine very shortly after the FDA rules and ACIP recommendations are issued. And is there anything more that you can tell us about masking and distancing? Yeah, absolutely. Especially right now, I think if you look at our numbers, only about 20% of people in Hawaii have had the bivalent vaccine. So that's a lot of our population that isn't necessarily up to date on their COVID vaccines. So there are other things that also help prevent spread of COVID-19, and they're going to be important to employ as well. A lot of these are familiar. So wearing a well-fitting mask, an N95 or a KN95, when you're around other people, being home when you're sick, covering your cough. Remember, it's not just COVID right now, too. We are also seeing influenza circulating. It's not the, quote-unquote, typical flu season, but in Hawaii, we often don't follow those rules. So we are seeing increased flu activity over the last couple of months in Hawaii as well. These measures can also not just help with COVID, but also to prevent flu. 
right now we aren't seeing RSV, but if we do see an increase in RSV, then masking and staying home when you're sick, covering your cough are also going to help prevent RSV. Hand hygiene is real important, particularly for flu and RSV as well. I think I just saw something come across in my email about the flu shot. Yes, the flu shots are out for the 23-24 season. We do know that the current strains we're seeing are a mix of flu A and flu B. And right now is a good time to get your flu vaccine. I wouldn't wait this season. We're seeing early activity in Hawaii. The kids just got back into school. And I, I know that there was concern about the cases that were cropping up in Maui. I don't know if you got any word from the hospitals over there about the hospital census count? Census counts have been high, and it's a mix of things. Obviously, Maui is dealing with a lot more than just flu and COVID, but these are things that we can do something about. So it's important to think about your health and take care of it, among all the other things that people are going through. This is also a busy time for travel. Lots of folks may have been traveling over the Labor Day holiday. I mean, I wore my mask uh, on the plane just because. Just <laughs> uh, so, you know, because I was nervous about, you know, what I was picking up. And I totally agree. I, I, you know, during COVID, when we were all being so careful with masking, when I first went on a few flights after having not gone on for a while, I realized I almost always used to get sick when I got in an airplane. Now I'm masking when I go on the plane just as a routine and I don't get sick after flight. So there's side benefits to doing those mitigation measures. Yeah. I mean, the airlines passed out alcohol swabs, you know, to wipe your seats right. down. And, and so just those little things will be helpful just in the spread of whatever it is from flu to COVID. Yeah. The other point that I would make, too, is remember there's effective treatments out there for both COVID and influenza. And this this year, I think it's not going to be obvious. If you come down with a cough, sore throat, maybe you've got a little fever, maybe you don't, it's going to be really hard to know whether that's COVID-19 or influenza. So getting tested, whether that's the self-test kit for COVID at home to start or going in to get a rapid test for flu and COVID, that's going to be really useful, especially for people who would be eligible for treatment. So if you're a little bit older, if you have diabetes, heart disease, or other underlying conditions, Getting a test right away can make sure that you get the right treatment, and that's going to make your course much better. So whether it's Paxlovid. Um, right, or Oseltamivir, Tamiflu, right. Anything else you want to underscore at this point? I would just say that you know, data on the what we now call sort of the big three viruses, COVID-19, influenza, and RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, is better and better these days. So we have more visibility into what's going on with these trends. There's actually a website up newly today from the CDC that shares what we call syndromic surveillance data state by state and shows what proportion of emergency department visits are attributable to each of those big three viruses. And right now in Hawaii, these, these data are just up newly today, but you can find it on the CDC um, National Syndromic Surveillance Program website. So right now, COVID-19 in Hawaii is accounting for about 4% of emergency department visits in the state, blue about 1%. RSV is still less than 0.1%, but we could see that change in the coming months based on what we saw last year. So I think this is a good tool for both healthcare providers and the public to kind of track and see, okay, well, how bad is this virus right now in Hawaii? And this will help give us and our healthcare providers information on how to best respond. That was Dr. Sarah Campbell, epidemiologist with the State Health Department, with guidance about the latest surge of COVID cases. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. 
Pack your bags and practice your Espanol. Today we head down to South America and an ancient retreat for Inca royalty. It is the gem of Peru, Machu Picchu, or what archaeologist Richard Berger calls the Inca equivalent of Camp David. Machu Picchu was built around 1450 when the Inca Empire was most powerful, and although they built the estate, they abandoned it a century later during the Spanish conquest. But you could hardly call it abandoned now. It's Peru's biggest tourist attraction, thanks to a young archaeologist who excavated and publicized the site in 1911. Our quiz this morning, who was this young man, and what is the Hawaii connection to the lost city of the Incas? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a HBR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NairitHawaii.com. This Saturday, HPR continues our Indie 808 performance series with local alternative pop band Kennedy Taylor and the Electric Pancakes, live in our Atherton studio in Honolulu. The band is donating 100% of tickets proceeds to support Maui relief efforts. Doors open at 7 p.m., show begins at 8. Purchase your tickets online at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors installing Daikin products, that's D-A-I-K-N, at CostcoHawaii.com. Recent Maui fires have increased the importance of having a plan in place on every island to guide the recovery process after a natural disaster. Oahu's plan is currently in the works. Matt Gonzer is the city's chief sustainability officer. He's asking Oahu residents to share their stories of how they've been impacted by any recent national uh, natural disasters via an online survey. The information will help inform and shape the development of Oahu's recovery plan. Gonzer talked with the Conversations Plus of Subiono about why the plan is needed now more than ever. Unfortunately, both locally, across the nation, and globally, we're seeing more impacts from extreme weather events, climate disasters, and we're seeing disparate moments of recovery from those, those events across different communities. We're not immune to any of this by any way, shape, or form. In the last 10 years, we've had 11 different disaster declarations across the state. And that also includes the COVID pandemic, which really is a significant and ongoing health and economic crisis for so many. But what we're seeing, especially as we observe whether it's a small town in Tornado Alley that's trying to recover, or even a major city like New York City post-hurricane Superstorm Sandy, the systems that the federal government has to provide immediate response and relief relative to the long tail of recovery are variable, but they're known. And what we want to make sure is that we continue to educate ourselves about how we can wisely and responsibly bring those resources to bear for community, but also see where we've been challenged in the past so that we are better prepared to think about long-term recovery. And there really is a spectrum. There's preparedness. There's when an event happens, which can be extremely severe, and we need to really focus on evacuation, relief, search and rescue, et cetera. But there really is this long tail of what recovery can mean for an individual, for a community, and a local government as well. And we might need to lament some of those federal processes, but we have to learn how to play the game because it's likely that we'll be confronted with these challenges potentially increasingly into the future. So we want to take stock. We want to hear from community. We're at least a little bit fortunate here on Oahu where even though we've had 
disaster declarations. They've been somewhat localized. You can think of the 2018 flooding in East Honolulu and Waimanalo side. Still some farms went out of business as a result of multiple flooding events. We've had flooding on the North Shore in early 2021. We've had flooding in the winter of 2022. And we need to think through what kinds of frameworks, supports, or what are the gaps that local government might need to step up to better fill information challenges or um, how to better facilitate our residents in our community getting access to the kinds of recovery funds that they need. And I know that the city has had this in the works prior to the Maui wildfires, but it seems like what has happened on Maui is kind of shining an even brighter light on the need for this. Is there anything that the city is observing from the relief and recovery process on Maui that they're also kind of working into this plan? Our hearts ache for the community members and those that have been identified to have lost their lives and those that we might really not ever be able to definitively identify as a result of the fire. The critical work of supporting those that need shelter, resources, getting back to school, finding lost revenue support if you're a business or an employee, that stuff is mission critical right now. But you're already hearing community conversations about what comes back, what gets restored, what might look different relative to the community that we knew at the start of August, right? And it's highly unlikely that any kind of pre-disaster recovery plan can definitively put a pin on the map and say, this is what the rebuild will look like. But slowing down, recognizing and understanding the kinds of questions that are being explored around potential for environmental restoration, potential for different designs of communities, while still ensuring that people are restored in some respect. Whether it's insurance or the federal relief dollars, it's very unlikely that someone can be made whole again. But through recovery, really deep, genuine community discussions, we hope that we are better prepared and in a better spot than we were before an event. And that's what we're trying to do and gather the experiences through the survey, but within the plan itself, you know, what are the structures for decision? What are the, the moments where we need to ask these kinds of questions? What kinds of pre-disaster ordinances might we need to develop so that they kick on to facilitate safer recovery and rebuilding thereafter? Because we'll need to think about not just putting people back in place and ensuring that those neighborhoods are still part of our broader community fabric, but we'll have to really think through economic workforce development opportunities, what are the future climate hazards that we're also concerned about? And how do we make sure we're not perpetuating a potentially vulnerable condition? And again, it's it's very unlikely that any person in a position can articulate that plan before an event happens. But we can be aware and savvy about the kinds of questions and sensitivities we need to bring to recovery planning once we're confronted with an event. I know we can't plan for every single possible scenario, but if we can be prepared as possible for as many as possible, that puts our local government at, at an advantage. In a lot, I think in a lot of disaster situations through the interviews that I've done and, and I've seen and heard, we hear a lot of people say that the government is more reactive than proactive. And in some cases, they feel like the government is slow to respond. Does this survey and this plan that the city is putting together, does it hope to kind of address that to be able to act quicker in the event of a disaster? I want to share too sort of how this, this component of emergency recovery thinking fits into the broader citywide portfolio. So this will be a component of the city's overarching emergency operations plan, which includes things like the hazard mitigation plan, right? What are the actions that we can take before an event to make the impacts from an event less severe. And that's the point of pre-disaster mitigation efforts. We also know that we need to continue community discussions around household community preparedness while we're also trying to bring resources to bear to address those risks that we know are out there. But then we also definitely need the commitments, the coordination for responding to an event and responding immediately after an event on the relief side. And the more that we can have open discussions and learn from people's experiences, 
I can only hope that we're better educated as a whole community. It's disgraceful the kinds of scams or solicitations, unrequested solicitations that we're seeing out there. FEMA's done a really good job at sort of debunking and creating resources to make people feel comfortable to even engage in the system because we know that there's concerns about sometimes engaging in government relief programs or sort of providing your information to a government agency. If nothing else, I hope that we as a community better understand that this is the system and that it's okay to engage when that moment comes. And that's just part of, again, that spectrum of blue skies planning. What are we doing to reduce risk from what we know is out there? But then also what are the kinds of decision frameworks, decision supports, or better understanding whether it's HUD money, FEMA money, small business administration loans, what is the full spectrum and how do we incorporate that into some of our community preparedness discussions so that we can all think about what level of continuity we might need to prepare for as individuals and households and businesses. Can you talk about the survey? How do Oahu residents access it? How long will it take to fill out? Do they need anything with them as they're filling it out? Nope, they don't need anything with them as they're filling it out. And the, the best way to access it is to go to our website, resilientoahu.org slash disaster recovery. You'll see immediately the survey right at the top of that web page. But then there's also more information where you can learn about the broader aspects of the project, including our community advisory team that we have helping us along with our city agencies that are helping us navigate. The survey itself, while it looks kind of long, it's, it's really some quick responses and then some demographics. At the end, it shouldn't take more than 10 minutes. And we greatly appreciate and benefit from folks' experience because um, we're seeing it in real time right now, though a lot of that is really on the relief side still. We know that there's a blurred line between when we're in a response to relief to recovery moment but we know that the recovery really might afford us an opportunity to do significant rebuilding that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do unless we had decades. But now there's this huge influx of resources and we need to prepare ourselves to utilize them responsibly and in a very time sensitive manner. What kind of privacy measures are in place and what will your office do with the information that is gathered? So no information is being collected in terms of personal identification. Even if someone perhaps slips up and provides something that might be a unique identifier, that will not become part and parcel of the analysis or the final written report. It's really about continuing to collect the stories here where there might have been shortcomings. Really, we can only control on our side, right, the community and local government experience. You know, we still have to learn about the state interface and working within the federal government structure. But when we collect those stories, we can then advocate for the kinds of additional, whether it be language access resources or, or other kinds of distributed support networks out there. So really it, it's to inform past experience to make sure that we're asking the right questions and finding the kinds of resources that we might need to be in a better state moving forward on recovery. Thank you so much for your time, Matt. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Russell. That was the Office of Climate Change, Sustainability, and Resiliency's Matt Gonzer talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. The deadline to share your Oahu natural, natural disaster stories is Tuesday, September 12th. We'll have a link to the online survey on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Lutheran Church of Honolulu, performing music of Barber, Bach, and others, 7 p.m. September 11th, in honor of those who died in 2001. Open to the public, lchwelcome.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Daniel Pinchbeck. I'm the author of How Soon Is Now, Breaking Open the Head, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about planetary evolution of consciousness.
beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from SMS Consulting, providing data-driven strategic planning and evaluation services to nonprofits, businesses, and government agencies in Hawaii. Learn more at smshawaii.com. reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat looks at how lawmakers are rallying to deal with issues around the disaster on Maui. Chad Blair joins us today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So I understand you're going to be keeping an eye uh, on things down at the legislature (laughs) and uh, the House uh, put out something about uh, how they're going to be tackling the session. Right. This broke just uh, late yesterday afternoon, and the, the House of Representatives under Speaker Scott Psyche said they have a plan of action, specifically what they have done. All 51 members, uh, they have formed six separate working groups in response to the Lahaina tragedy. Of course, fires in upcountry and on the Big Island and Kihei as well, not to forget uh, those areas too. but. The speaker said the priority uh, is wildfire prevention. That is right at the very top. Uh, He didn't provide any specifics on what might come in terms of legislation, but said they were open to any number of ideas. Uh, The other five areas for these working groups uh, are schools, jobs and businesses, uh, environmental remediation, shelter which includes housing and then food water and supplies are, are combined together there's there's co-chairs uh, for each of the working groups there are a number of people involved and uh, they uh, i should just let you know they're actually during interim right they're not actually in session right now so they are working during the interim to become uh, to come up with solutions to respond to lahaina yes and you know i know when we uh, chatted with um uh, uh uh, reporter uh, Thomas Heaton the other day, he was talking about the issue of a uh, fire marshal, and that legislation has come up in the past, and it's likely that that will be on the table this session, too. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, Hawaii having uh, the only state without a fire marshal, kudos to Thomas for getting that scoop, and um, I was kind of joking around uh, the office the other day that Thomas will be spending a lot of time at the state capitol <laughs> come January through early May because uh, he has reported a lot on wildfire prevention and that's one of the things that a fire marshal might well have done is is be on the lookout for, for warnings and um, that remember that was initially created by the legislature according to Thomas's report and then they later did away with it. Um, the report from uh, the, the House Working groups is November 1st. That's a pretty tight time frame. A final report, that's a draft. A final report would be December the 15th. The working groups themselves would then dissolve uh, come January 17th. That is the official opening day for the 2024 session. Yes, and, uh, you know, lots to talk about when it comes to housing. I mean, you know, we've got you know, all the federal uh, help that is available for a lot of the uh, survivors of that uh, terrible disaster. You know, uh, I think HUD is in town, the, you know, uh, housing folks on the federal level, you know, so lots of things in in play. And so, it, yeah, it, it's probably a good idea that they start kind of looking to see what's out there and, and what else can they supplement with. Right. And the ledge up to now, is it's been fairly quiet, as, uh, as the speaker himself noted, that this is very much an issue that involves, uh, it starts with the administration, the Green Administration, Maui County, obviously, the federal agencies like FEMA. Uh, but the, the House did say that their work will be in close collaboration with those same parties, federal, state and county agencies, as well as we call it community stakeholders, uh, other people. Uh, that are uh, have interest in, in these issues and this will entail having lawmakers on the ground and maui certainly there is already a delegation from maui obviously and they have particular concerns uh, but they're going to assess things firsthand evaluate it and the idea yeah, is to come back in january with some some solid solutions i should say even though it's a democratically controlled legislature including the house uh, the republicans are involved the minority caucus very much a part of this speaker psyche did say they wanted to be part, shall we put it, they want to be part of the solution. Yes, and, you know, we did uh, uh, connect with um, 
uh, Maui lawmaker uh, Angus McKelvey. You know, he mm. lost uh, uh, so much in that fire. And we were checking on Ellie Cochran and uh, Roz Baker. You know, a lot of those lawmakers, you know, have a, a perspective, uh, you know, being a part of that community for so long. But obviously, yeah, lots of input that they can help share. Yeah, just to add, probably not a special session given that January is approaching pretty quickly. We don't know what the Senate's going to do. We didn't hear from Speaker, rather President Ron Kochi. Certainly both chambers would have to agree on any legislation that would go to the governor, but I'm sure we're going to be hearing any number of ideas regarding the Lahaina fires come January. All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Civil Beat's Chad Blair with today's reality check. Uh, to read the full story, head to civilbeat.org. Housing will remain a key issue for a very long time. Recently, we invited Kali Watson into our studios to talk about plans to spend the $600 million that the legislature appropriated to get more units developed for the beneficiaries of the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Watson returned to the helm of DHHL for the second time and is more resolved than ever to get Native Hawaiians in housing than ever before with this Maui disaster. He says during his first tenure at DHHL, the wait list was 3,000. That jumped to 7,000. It is now at 29,000. In the meantime, a long-running lawsuit over the wait list, Kalima versus the state, went up to the Hawaii Supreme Court and was recently settled. Here's Watson. Clearly, there is you know, a big need out there for housing, but you also have a situation where you have a, the Hawaiian community is suffering. And you know, I, I think it's in critical emergency mode. We have 40% of the incarcerated Hawaiians, 40% of the homeless Hawaiians, families with lowest income, Hawaiians, most crowded households, Hawaiians. So it goes on and on and on with respect to the social, economic, and health issues, as well as cultural issues that plague our people. And so it, to me, the foundation, part of the solution, a major part of the solution is housing. Provide them with a stable environment that they can live and prosper. And so that's where I think this program while challenging, has been given a big boost by Act 279 by the legislature. And, you know, last year got $600 million. That's a lot of money, but we also need to use it wisely. And so that's where the leveraging and using other funds and accessing other federal, state, and county programs, as well as the private sector, whereby we can accumulate these funding sources and really move some of the projects that we have on our books. We have about 20 projects that our commission has approved, which was uh, part of the conditions in getting the $600 million that the legislature wanted to see what we're going to use the money for. Of those 20 projects, about 14 involve residential construction. So it's anticipated we'll do about 3100 I, I feel we'll do a lot more. But the thing is, you know, personally, I think we're going to need more money, especially with 29000 on our wait list. But we've already encumbered 200 million. And so the other 400 million with the projects we have that we're reviewing and moving forward, anticipate we'll use up the remaining 400 million because we're not limited to just our existing lands. We've acquired a bunch of new lands in, in great locations with existing infrastructure, as well as utilities, which a lot of our existing inventory lands don't have. And so that's been the challenge historically for the program is the lands have been poorly located with little infrastructure, very costly infrastructure that is needed. And so it's it's a different ballgame as we move forward in the program. And so talk about the infrastructure, because, you know, while you're putting aside some of the 600 million to buy properties, what about the development costs of putting in the sewers, you know, the water, uh, you know, that kind of thing? Well, typically, when you put on a unit or a homestead, it'll cost you about 220000 per unit for infrastructure alone. Then you're looking at the vertical construction will cost over 400000 So you can easily do the numbers and see that you know, each, each unit is very, very expensive. So that's why the, the use of this funding, it, it's just going to go so far. And we're definitely going to need more funding. We also want to build these new homesteads as well as expanding existing ones in a way that is conducive 
for a, a neighborhood. It's not just the vertical construction. So we are also working with the different elite trusts as well as OHA to put in schools, put in cultural centers, put in kupuna housing, put in medical clinics and various other things that are really critical to making a, a community that's you know some attractive, inviting, but more importantly with the services and the environment that's really conducive to raising a family. Can you speak to a particular project that you're developing? Well, we just met and put out our RFQ, which is Quest for qualifications in our Kaulu Okahai project in Kapolei, which is next to the Croc Center, as well as a TOD station. So in that one, what we did was we combined four parcels rather than going piecemeal and developing the infrastructure, then you know, putting out to bid to do the vertical. We combined all four parcels, which will result in 548 units being built by one developer. And so the developer, obviously, its per unit cost will go down, which is a benefit to our homesteaders, but more so they'll do it in a, a quicker and more timely fashion that will address our waiting lists a lot quicker, which is very, very important. So a lot of the projects we're doing, we're doing that. We put doing large numbers, which uh, requires us to identify developers with the proper capacity to build at that level. Is there anything that you can speak to as far as the infrastructure piece on other islands uh, besides Oahu? Yeah, I, I guess there's a variety of people on our wait list, like Kahikinui, way out in you know isolated area. We, we do have people on our wait list that want to meet the challenges of putting up and living in a homestead where there's no utilities. All we're doing there is putting in a road. So it, it's very challenging environment, but we do have people on a wait list that want to do that. But I think more realistically, the majority of the people on our wait list want the amenities, want access to you know, schools and restaurants and jobs. So that's why we've kind of emphasized more logistically homesteads that are conducive to that kind of demand. Lots of people have been waiting for the old Bolodrome development. You know that's been in the works for many years, and and that's in town, and that's rentals, and and uh, lots of folks are anxious to see that take shape. Yeah, that's a new project for us. It's a new attempt to use our lands in a more productive, I think, way especially lands that are somewhat limited, especially in urban Honolulu. So now we're going up, we're doing a 22-story high-rise involving about 278 units, primarily two bedrooms. It is a rental program for people coming off the wait list. We're looking at maybe trying to convert that into actually a homesteading award scenario. So the, the idea there is to create some kind of equity and interest in the unit that they can pass on to their successors or heirs. That's something new, so I'm having Nigo take a look at that. We're looking at possibly the route whereby we treat the land as separate from the actual CPR unit, where you have a financing approach on the construction of the vertical, but on the land, what I'd like to do is issue a homestead lease that is kind of separate, but does allow them to then have a, a interest in that unit which they can pass on to their successors. Okay, so we just got to be innovative, creative as we try and tackle this crisis. Is there anything you want to address just with this whole Kalima lawsuit? You know, that has been going on forever. Oh, yeah. I'd like to reach out to the participants that are in the process of receiving their settlements. I would like to suggest that they work with us. We identify a homestead that they could be awarded and use that money to reduce their monthly payment. You know, I used to be a plaintiff attorney, and unfortunately, and not to say that this will happen, but invariably, people that receive large sums, they, they spend it. You know, not always foolishly, but in some cases foolishly, whereby at the end of the day, maybe in two years, they got nothing. So if you can invest it in something that you're gonna have forever, that you can pass on to your kids or whatever, to me, that would be a wiser choice. And so the department is ready to work with you as well as you know, the trustees, as well as your advisors or whoever to kind of fashion a, an approach, whether it's putting the money in an escrow account or whatever. But we are gonna have a lot of housing being developed and the opportunity is gonna be different from before where you have choices. And it's not just a large three, four bedrooms. 
we're looking at townhouses as well as the condos that like the Bolodrome. But there'll be opportunities to use the funds in the way you want, but we'll also have models that might fit your needs more, more in line with what you want to do in the future. And then how does that work? I mean, so they get a settlement. Um, they're already on the list, on the wait list. Um, do they get moved up? Or they just have, they'll have that offer. If if you choose, here's what we have available, and you can uh, uh, be on homestead land. Yeah, it's going to be a process where on our website we'll identify the different projects that are starting to evolve to where it's a point where you can make a choice, and then we're working with the developers to also have them develop websites, so you can go on the internet and take a look at the different choices. And then we also have, and we're working with third party, including staff, regarding what category do you fit into? Where you can do a turnkey, or do you need to maybe subsidize part of the mortgage so you can get it down to where it's affordable? And so we just kind of work with you to fashion approach where we can use that money to make it more a viable situation for you in home ownership. And so there's counseling available. There are third-party CDFIs as well as like Hawaiian Community Lending that is going to be working with the department and you, if you choose to, or you can kind of figure out where best to use your funds. Okay. And then anything else you just want to say just about that chapter in DHHL's history? Well, I think, you know, it's a real opportunity that's come around. To me, it's a generational opportunity. Be prepared, but also be very active in exploring your options, especially of those on the mainland and elsewhere that would like to come back to Hawaii. We invite you back because there's a lot of you that can add to the community in not just your presence, but your skill set. And we are looking for workers at the department. If you are interested in working for the department, we have all kinds of jobs available from you know development, accounting, and whatever workers can move our program forward, that's who we're looking for. And so do consider working for the department. And we do have a website that you can take a look at, dhhl.hawaii.org, and on there, look under jobs, and there's a list. But we're not limited to that. So if you want, contact the department directly. Me personally, if you want to talk story, and uh, <laughs> we're, look, we're looking for workers. So right. we invite you to be part of the program and, and the, the effort to really make the program uh, successful. All right. Well, Connie Watson, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. All right. Thank you. And that was Connie Watson, director of the Department of Hawaiian Homelands, talking with us about how best to spend the $600 million that lawmakers set aside to get more housing developed for Native Hawaiians. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, with ideas to help reduce water waste during these hot, dry months, such as installing a weather-based irrigation controller. More at boardofwatersupply.com. Congress is gearing up for yet another fight over the Farm Bill, the massive piece of legislation that includes subsidies for farmers. If there's a bad year there, like there's hail or it's droughty, they're still going to make money, even though they didn't actually produce anything necessarily. Is it time to completely rethink not just how the Farm Bill works, but what it's for? That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com.
You know, shortly after the Maui wildfires, DHHL's Kelly Watson told us that a survey of their projects found that only a handful of units were damaged. HPR reporter Kuvehiri, she was on Maui recently and joins us today to talk about the work on the ground to support beneficiaries during this very trying time. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, uh, I did have the opportunity to head over uh, to the villages of Lealii, which is uh, home to over 100 Native Hawaiian beneficiaries. Lealii is just a few minutes west of Lahaina Town, and it's the first homestead community for West Maui beneficiaries that uh, was just opened up, gosh, I've got to say around 13, 14 years ago. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, only two of the 104 homes in Lealii were lost. In the wildfires, Hawaiian Homes Commissioner Randy Awo, who represents beneficiaries on the island of Maui, was there on the ground in Lealii as soon as government officials allowed him. We were finally allowed to enter, I think it was the Thursday following the event. And so we were allowed to get through the checkpoint to go out with some of our DHHL staff. So we've been engaged ever since then. What we did see initially was this miraculous survival of homes that were surrounded by devastation. But they still had challenges. They had no electricity. They had no running water. Um, There was damage to the roofs, the shingles. And so, you know, our immediate concern was to move quickly with whatever supplies they needed, whatever assets they needed. It was interesting to uh, have them explain it to me like lava was flowing down. It was the fire was coming towards the Hawaiian homestead community and then it just kind of went around, uh, clipped a few homes, but uh, from folks who were there on the ground explaining that was very um, eye-opening. Uh, a wool, of course, a retired do-care chief uh, who actually grew up on Hawaiian homelands in Waimanalo and currently lives in the homestead community of Waiehuko there on Maui. He's been out there in Lele'i nearly every day a meeting with the community. Uh, Lele'i homesteader and Hokule'a crew member Archie Kalepa opened up his home to serve as a hub for distributing supplies from water to food to these HIPAA uh, air filters, right? Because some of the that area is a bit toxic um, for uh, folks who have problems. But Kalepa, being the waterman that he is, <laughs> says the Lahaina community needs a new sale plan. What I want to talk about is coming up with a sale plan. And when I say that, it's how our people became part of this place, how this place became Hawaii and how we became Hawaiians, knowing where we're going and how we're going to get there. Those discussions absolutely need to be had with these people behind me so that when we come out of this, this voyage of hardship, of who we are as a people, that we're able to represent all. And that was a sentiment um, I've heard from many of the homesteaders. You know, we yes, we're a homestead community, but this fire impacted everyone here, a non-Hawaiian as well in Lahaina. And part of what they're trying to do is help out as many community members as they can. Uh, but Awo and members of the Hawaiian Homes Commission at its August meeting, which was a, a few weeks, a couple of weeks after the fire, had set up the DHHL Emergency Rental Assistance Program, which makes available up to $5 million in federal funds that the department receives under the Native Hawaiian, uh, Native American Housing and Self-Determination Act, but that'll help pay for temporary lodging, security deposits, and or rent for up to six months. Uh, these funds are aimed at assisting not only the DHHL lessees, uh, those already on homestead, but applicants on the wait list who may need temporary housing or you know, experiencing difficulty because they lost their job. Awo says the long-term plan for the area includes some 250 lots in Lele'i Phase 1B. What we are currently looking at is the development of Lele'i Phase 1B. Um, that was put on hold for a while because it's it's a very costly project because the, the Aina is expensive to develop, a lot of blue rock. But, you know, as a result of what occurred, the focus has now shifted back to Lealii. And so that is a work very much in progress. Um, It has been elevated to the top tier right now. Right, so those 250 lots, they were already on, on the plan uh, for DHHL in terms of that $600 million Watson was talking about earlier. 
Uh, that's about half of what they have. The department has slated for the island of Maui when it comes to use of these funds. Yeah, and uh, you know, uh, that's good to look for the future. But again, as you mentioned, those families that maybe don't have electricity. I don't know if the water's mm-hmm. back on. The the hardships, the day to day hardships, and it's been a month now, right? So. Right. That's exactly what they're focusing on. Those distribution hubs are still working hard and I think refining at this moment where they're moving things around to make it more accessible, but also allowing folks to come in and volunteer if they need the help. Yeah, it's a tough one. All right. But thank you so much, Kuvehi. We have been talking to HBR's Kuvehi Hiraishi. Read more of her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. unearth the answer to our backyard quiz. Earlier in the show, we asked you about the Hawaii connection to Machu Picchu, located in the Peruvian Andes. A young Yale archaeologist who studied at Oahu College, now Punahou School, was the first to lead excavations at the historical site. Credited for bringing the Incan citadel to the attention of the West in 1911, he uncovered many famous structures that had been buried for over 400 years. This uh, intrepid scholar-explorer spent his career overseas, but Hiram Bingham was born in Honolulu, the son and grandson of Protestant missionaries. Bingham returned to Machu Picchu in 1912 and in 1915 and went on to publish his findings on South America in various books. And congrats to our winner today, uh, Richard DeMarco from Kapa'a. He shared that he and his wife celebrated their 49th wedding anniversary there at Machu Picchu. And guess what? They discovered there's even a line called the Hiram Bingham Train. Uh, Mahalo for calling that in. That's today's quiz. If you have one to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. it for us right now. Up tomorrow, we are opening up our phone lines and dedicating our show to the history of Lahaina, keeping the stories alive for the future as we mark the one-month anniversary of the devastating wildfires. We invite you to share your memories of uh, Lahaina Town. Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.